Here we are. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening, dear friends. Wonderful to be back with all of you for our third class. Joey, put away your phone. I'm just kidding. <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right. Here we are back in Tanya. We are in the middle of the author's introduction. And today we are going to, God willing, be answering the burning question of the author's introduction. Let's recap a little bit. All right. And then we'll uh, plunge on forward. The Alter Rebbe is in the middle of authoring his magnum opus, uh, which was already understood then to be uh, a book which is going to be something special, but interestingly, his fan base, we're talking about tens of thousands or perhaps even hundreds of thousands of Jews who are part of his community, see him as their mentor, as their spiritual leader, are actually very not excited about the book. And the reason why they're not excited is because the book is designed, was in, which was in the middle of being authored at that point, uh, was designed to be a book that would replace the need to have to have personal meetings with the Alter Rebbe, with Rabbi Schneir Zalman, right? The author of the Tanya. Uh, what was happening was, and we'll read about this soon in the actual text, the Alter Rebbe was getting exceedingly busy and the amount of Jews which wanted to meet with him and wanted to seek out his guidance was not getting any smaller. The lines were not getting any shorter. And it just, just it became a question of time. It was impossible. He couldn't keep up with the demand. And he therefore decided to write a book. And it wouldn't just be a book with good ideas. And it wouldn't just be a, a book with philosophy. It would be a practical book which could really guide and hold your hand and give you that spiritual deep insight to help you cultivate your relationship with God, cultivate your expression of your soul. That's what the Tanya was all about. Uh, but, the, but the fan base said, no, we don't want that. We insist on having personal interactions. We don't want a book. We want you. We want to meet with you. We want to speak with you and meet with you and, and get direction from you face to face. And the Alter Rebbe doesn't dismiss these arguments. He actually validates them, which is quite, quite interesting. And in his introduction to the book, he actually explains what are the, the natural, the automatic uh, problems or downsides of a book. And the key idea of a book is that a book is always going to be impersonal. The author basically says two points, two problems with a book. Number one, even if the book is perfect, not everybody can understand a book. Some people, so the author says, in general, everybody reads a book through their subjective minds. Everybody reads something differently. We all read things with our own biases. And therefore, somebody will be more spiritually in tune and be able to open up the book and understand and appreciate the ideas within. Some will be in confusion. As the author of it says, they walk in darkness in matters of, of spirituality. They walk in darkness in matters of, of, uh, of, of connecting with God and serving God. And therefore, even though the book would be amazing, these people won't be able to access the goodness within the book. But if it would be a face-to-face -face meeting, the argument goes, in a face-to-face -face meeting, it's much, it's much easier to gauge out what's going on. You could gauge out your audience, right? You could be in tune to who you're speaking to and realize, you know, should we dumb down the message? Should we, should we do this a little bit shallower, et cetera? You could, you could feel out your audience. But in a book, it's always going to be impersonal, and it's impossible for a book to ever be something that could deliver the correct message uh, in a way that could be understandable to every single person. That's problem number one. Problem number two is, well, and this is, a, this is the problem that the author ever focuses on, could there ever be a book that speaks to every single individual? And the author of explains the idea that we find in Judaism, the idea that there is tremendous diversity. And without going to it too much in depth, the author ever brings down the idea, which is a Kabbalistic idea, that there are 600,000 general souls amongst the Jewish people. And every single one of these 600,000 souls has a very different and distinct personality. 
this tremendous diversity. And therefore, um, could a book truly ever speak to all personality types? That's the, that's the essential question. You could write a book which will be a bestseller and be so helpful for 100 people, for 1,000 people, for 10,000 people, for 100,000 people. But one man can never write a book that speaks to all of humanity. It's impossible. Because there's tremendous diversity. Nobody's minds and hearts think and feel the same way. No one's personality is alike. Nobody's temperament is alike. And people really do need their own personal tailor-made messaging and direction for their spiritual growth. And the altruist says that this problem even exists in a work of Torah. The Torah, on the one hand, uh, is the inheritance of every Jew. And the altruist brings down that the soul of every Jew, no matter what level Jew you're on, if you're the most spiritual and then the highest level Jew, and even if you're the lowest level Jew, every Jew is deeply connected to the Torah. And the Torah does have the message for your soul specifically. But the author have explained, and we won't go into the depth of the explanation that we gave last class, that even though the Torah speaks generally to all Jews, there is always a unique angle, a unique perspective within every idea in the Torah that speaks most, speaks uniquely to your soul. And that's called your portion, your place in the Torah. Every Jew has a place in the Torah. Their idea that speaks to them. And the author of it says, even if it's a book of Torah, not every Jew is successful. <laughs> and that's a little bit of, a, uh, of an understatement. Hardly anybody is successful in truly identifying and being able to extract and tease out their unique perspective and angle within the Torah. So even in the Torah, there's this, there's this idea of personal messaging. So when you have a leader, a Rebbe, who is a gifted soul, like a soul doctor. And when he meets with a Jew, he could read your soul. He could diagnose your soul. And he could help deliver to you the idea in Torah that you need to hear. That could happen in person. But a book, a book is standard. A book automatically means that this is one size fits all. Could a book ever be something that could speak to every single individual Jew? And before we get to the Alter Rebbe's response to these challenges, right? And the basic challenge is, Alter Rebbe, you want to write a book to replace personal meetings, it's doomed for failure. It's not going to work. It, it can't work. So before we go on to the response, we are in middle of the, uh, of the question part. We are on page 12 on the file that I sent out to you. Um, page 12. And we're on the third paragraph. And the author is going to strengthen his question that even in the area of Torah, there is tremendous personal application that is needed in ideas of Torah. And therefore, even if it's a Torah book, the book cannot replace having a living, breathing, face-to-face -face mentor who can lead and guide you and direct you. So let's begin reading. Page 12, three paragraphs from the top, and it's right after this break, if you see. There's a break in between, right? The, there's a little bit of an extra spacing over there. That's what I do sometimes to help. Um, in the handout, that's what I'll do to try to help organize a text and try to break things up a little bit. So here's what the author of it says. Even more so, even in the case of halacha, which means the legal discussions, Concerning what is permissible and forbidden, we find this personal element in the Torah for different souls. Okay, let's stop over here. I want to explain with you a little bit. There's many parts of Torah. On the most basic layer, what's the Torah? Um, the Torah is really a book of law, right? I think that's even how... Um, how uh, in ancient days, that's really what they call the Torah, the world and, and, you know, and world culture. How did the Romans refer to the Torah scroll? They said the book of law for the Jews, it's book of law. So on the most basic level, what is the Jewish tradition? What is Jewish scholarship? What is the Mosaic tradition? It's a book of laws. Then there's also a lot of other parts of the Torah. There are Jewish values. 
There's Jewish philosophy. There is a biblical exegesis, which means the discovery, the archaeology, right? To borrow that term, the discovery of all the layers of meaning within the Torah. There's Jewish mysticism. There's all types of uh, genres within uh, Jewish teachings. But on the most basic level, there's law. Let me ask you a question. Is law a subjective topic or an objective topic? What do you guys say? Is law subjective or objective? So Joey says it's objective. Everybody, everybody agrees with that? That law is objective? We get a thumbs up? Which means like this. Which means like this. Generally speaking, you don't need... <laughs> Uh, once law is decided upon, law is law. Law is not something which we say, oh, it depends what type of personality you are. Maybe this law is for you. Maybe this law isn't for you. Law is law. Law is universally binding. That's really the nature of law, right? There's no, it applies to you. It doesn't apply to me. You know, that's, uh, that's, that's not a normal system of law. Okay, I hear what you're saying, Evgenia. <laughs> that, of course... The laws could change, but more or less the application of a law that was already decided upon by society um, is, um, it applies to everybody. This is like truth also, truth doesn't Right, but is law truth? Not necessarily, but it's the idea that, that the nature of law is that it's binding upon everybody. And if it's not, then that itself is part of law. So let me give you, so I have to explain to you where I'm going with this. Let me give you an example. I wanna give you an example, all right? Jewish law discusses how to light a menorah. All right. Now, the laws of how to light a menorah, is it relevant to these laws, your personality type, your personal temperament, your personal heart and heart and, uh, and soul? No. It's how to light a menorah. You know, there's, there's a law. The law of lighting a menorah is that you do it after sunset. The law of lighting a menorah is you have to have them in the, all the candles need to be on the same level. Laws of lighting a menorah is that on night number one, you light one candle and you move towards light. You then on night number eight, you light eight candles, right? You move up one to eight. So law is not a very personal, subjective, uh, psychological topic, so to speak, right? Law, law is law. It's universally binding. And even so, this is the interesting thing. Even in law, we find that there's a very personal there's a very personal element to Jewish law. What do I mean by that? If you look in the Talmud, the Talmud discusses the laws of the laws of Hanukkah, the laws of lighting a menorah. And uh, even though we light the menorah one to eight. Light number one, light, night number one, you light one candle, night number two, two candles, etc., till you reach eight. There's a debate in the Talmud. We actually follow the opinion of Hillel. Hillel says you begin with one and you make your way up to eight. But there's something very interesting. Shammai, who's not as of a, not as of a familiar name as Hillel, people are a lot more familiar with Hillel than Shammai, but Shammai was Hillel's counterpart. They always, they always studied and expressed their opinions side by side. Shammai says, no, the way you light a menorah is on night number one, you light eight candles. Night number two, you go down to seven candles till you get to night number eight and you light the last candle, only one candle. Backwards of how we do it. For the purpose of law, the law had to be established and I'm not gonna get into it now. But Jewish law itself has a mechanism that comes from Moses. It was given to us on Mount Sinai. How we decide law whenever there is a debate. And if you're interested to learn more about the system behind that, how Jewish law is decided, and how we deal with dissenting views, we did a course on this topic. Great debates. Uh, no, not great debates. We did a course this past summer, Judaism Decoded. Judaism Decoded, right? I think a bunch of you were there. The, uh, what was it called? Great, um, Judaism decoded the origins and evolution of Jewish tradition. I mean, a full class dedicated to debates and, and dedicated to resolving debates. 
But this idea, there's a debate in the Talmud. Now, I'm sure many of you know that in, in Judaism, right, there's all the stereotypes that we debate a lot and we argue over everything. That's the Jewish stereotype. And it's kind of true. I don't think you could find a single page in the Talmud where there's, a not, where there's a, not at least one debate. We're always debating. Here's my question for you. Two, you have two opinions. Hillel says one to eight. Shammai says eight to one. Hillel says innocent. Shammai says guilty. Hillel says permitted. Shammai says prohibited. A debate. Why is there a debate here? What's the general assumption? The assumption is that one person is right and the other person is, is wrong, <laughs> right? If you're both saying opposite opinions and okay, we gotta hash this out, let's debate it, let's discuss it, let's vote on it, but somebody had to have gotten this wrong, right? You can't light one to eight and eight to one, gotta be one way. You can't be innocent and guilty at the same time. So that's, that's, that's what we commonly think. That's, uh, that's common wisdom. There's a debate. Somebody's gotten it wrong here, obviously. But that's not the way it works in the, in, the, in the Talmud. There's actually a rule in the Talmud. The Talmud never recorded a illegitimate opinion, a mistaken opinion an opinion that was an incorrect conclusion. If so, meaning it's not to say that no rabbi ever said something and it wasn't a mistake. But if somebody said something which was a mistake, if somebody said something which was incorrect, it was never recorded in the Talmud. They left it on the cutting floor, <laughs> right? Why keep recording it for posterity? In the Talmud, they only record opinions which are true which are authentic. So how could both opinions be authentic? How could you have two opposing opinions which are authentic? And here the author was going to show us that even in the area of Jewish law, which Jewish law is usually right set in stone, law is not a, is not a very personal experience, right? The way uh, personal growth would be. Personal growth is a topic which is very personal. Personal growth anger management, how to be happy. These are topics which really uh, become very personal. We have to study our own personality, our own temperaments, our own strengths, our own weaknesses. But law, law is law. How to light a menorah, you know what I'm saying? You, know, you don't even have to go through a whole psychology class to, to understand the, the dynamics of how you should light a menorah, right? And so I'm saying. And the author says, even in the area of law, there's the idea of personal applications of different dimensions for different souls. Let's read a little bit inside. Okay, page 12, right? We're by the paragraph, the legal element. So the author writes like this. The legal element of Torah is practical. Okay, that's a mistake, right? Not R, it should be is. The legal element of Torah is practical and universally binding. Matters which do not concern the complex and subjective inner life of man, but rather external and objective acts that are revealed to us in our children. And even so, we find that the sages, both from the earlier and later generations, expressed differences of opinion, literally from one extreme to the other. Where does this come from? Where do all these, where do all these um, debates come from? And again, we typically think one of the sages got it wrong. One of the sages got it right. One of the sages got it wrong. The author says, no, there's something very deep going on over here. What's the cause for debates? Let's read. So the author writes, now, the cause for these differences of opinions are not errors or mistaken conclusions, right? They don't come because of people's intellectual biases. That's not the cause for differences of opinions. Rather, the author says, both opinions, although contradictory, are true and authentic. For both of them are the words of the living God, and the Hebrew is Elohim Chayim. Elu Elu divrei Elohim Chayim. These and these are the words of the living God. You should know our sages tell us that Moses himself asked this question to God. 
God, why did you create a system which is, which automatically creates so many debates? It's built into the system. And Moses asked God, isn't this very confusing for the Jewish people? There's going to be so many opinions, so many arguments. Everything becomes an argument. Everything becomes a debate. And God told Moses, even the opposing opinions all come from the same God. And it's a beautiful wording that the Medrash gives us. The same God gave it through the same leader to the same one Jewish people, and it's all part of the same one Torah. Even debates is all part of the truth. So where do these debates come from if they're both true? And how does that make sense that in legal matters there should be debates? So let's continue reading. The author is going to give us a very interesting mystical understanding for the existence of debates within Jewish law. The author ever writes like this. The words Elohim Chayim, which means living God, are stated in the plural. This is a very interesting uh, grammatically um, all right. This is a very interesting grammatical uh, analysis into the words of the Talmud. The Talmud says, Elu elu divri Elohim Chayim. These and these, both opinions, are the words of the living God. And the word living God is stated in Hebrew in the plural. So the Alter Abba says, indicating this teaches us that the diversity of opinions among the sages stem from the plurality and the source of life for the souls of Israel. The Talmud is not just saying that the differences of opinion come from God, but it's helping us understand how that happens. They come from the living God, from the God who offers life to all the souls. Our souls, and we're going to learn about this in depth very soon, chapter two, come from God. And even though all souls come from God, God made divisions among souls with different personalities. Think about it as different streams, different streams like a river that begins as one river and then it breaks out into streams. So all souls come from God, but then souls break out into different, uh, different, different categories. And each category is a different type of spiritual personality. Let's continue reading. And we're on the top of page 13. This spiritual source of souls is divided, generally speaking, into three paths. There's the right, there's a left and their center representing, right? What's right, left, and center? So the Altima says it's representing generosity, which is chesed. That's the Hebrew, chesed. The right side is generosity. Two, the left side is discipline, gevura. And three, the center is the harmonization, which is called teferis, respectively. So different souls have different personalities. So certain souls um, are colored right? They have the shading, more of kindness, chesed, generosity. Certain souls on the opposite side are more severe, have a certain a disciplinary nature to them, a little bit tougher. Then there are souls in the middle, which have a little bit of a combination of both. So what does this have to do? So the Altrebbe says, the souls rooted in the attribute of chesed, subliminally tend to be lenient in their legal decisions, being inclined toward generosity. And the souls rooted in Gevura subliminally tended to be more strict as is known. This is a very interesting thing. This is, we could give a, a full hour and a half class on this. I could do a course on this. When rabbis debate in the Talmud, why are they debating? What prompts them to, to come to their conclusion? And this is not something which you could get from a very literal peripheral study of the Talmud. But if you look at the Talmud deeply and analyze it, especially from a spiritual perspective, you could see that every single sage shares their understanding of any given topic based on the personality of their soul. You hear that? 
Every single sage studied Talmud from the perspective of their soul and, and, and shared the way they see the truth of Torah through the prism of their soul. I think about it as, uh, as, as, as shaded glasses, right? Like sunglasses, it's shaded. So if you have glasses which are shaded red, everything you see is red, right? You're seeing the same tree, but to one person, the tree is red. To the other person, the tree is uh, blue, right? So if you think about it on, on, a, on, a, on a more abstract level, when Hillel studied any topic, he saw it from the perspective of his soul, which was, a, which was a chesed soul, a soul of kindness. When Shammai studied and came to a conclusion of any given topic in Torah, he saw it from his shades, from his soul shades. And Shammai was more of the left side, givura, discipline, severity. Now, who's got it right? Who's got it right? Does Hillel have it right? Or does Shammai have it right? The answer is both have it right. Both are seeing it from a unique perspective. They each are standing from different perspectives and see it differently. For the purpose now, just, now, just to explain to you, for the purpose of deciding law, there is a mechanism on how to decide the law, ultimately what is binding upon the Jewish people. And once something was decided as law, there's no, step, there's no going back on that. And we're not going to go into it now, how law is, is, is voted upon and ratified and established in Jewish tradition. And again, if you would like to, uh, to, to go a little bit deeper into that, send me an email, I'll send you the recording to, to that class that we had, which was about this topic. Um, but the point is that even in the legal parts of Torah, what do we find? We find this idea. Different souls have different versions. There's tremendous personal application within Torah ideas. But every Jewish soul has a unique perspective of how to study and learn and apply any given topic in Torah. Now, now, why is this important? Why are we getting into this? The author is building his case to make his question even bigger. We'll read it in a second. Yeah, Joey, go ahead. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Oh, there we go. We just got a, we just got a very advanced, advanced comment. <laughs> Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our three forefathers, yes, were the fathers, literally the fathers of each of these three, these three streams of the Jewish people. Abraham was chesed on the right side. Isaac was gevura, discipline on the left side. Jacob was center, uh, teferis, which means harmony, where they bring the both of generosity and discipline together. So here's the author of his point. The author of his saying, if even in the legal part of Torah, you find the idea of diversity, of how personal the Torah could be, even in the legal aspects of Torah, then how much more so, right? That's the question. We're building a case. Then how much more so? Let's read over here, page 13. So in the text, if there are legitimate different interpretations for different souls, even in the Torah's legal matters, then how much more so in the interpretation of the hidden things that are for God, our God? What are the hidden things? Namely, a person's inner world of reverence and love of God, which is in the brain and the heart, which is so personal and varied from person to person, according to the scope of his heart, etc. As stated in the Holy Zohar, in its commentary on the verse, her husband is known in the gates. When it comes to a personal relationship with God, that's very personal. That's very intimate. And in Judaism, we teach, first of all, let me just establish. In Judaism, we believe that every Jew has a direct line with God, right? In other religions, you have to go through other intermediates to get, to get to God. In Judaism, it's direct. Every Jew has a direct personal relationship with God, and that relationship is intimate. And intimate means that it's very personal. It's personalized. 
Nobody has a relationship with God the same way. It's a very personal thing. Why is it so personal? Because every person is different, right? That's the theme here. There's tremendous diversity. And the Zohar, very interestingly, explains this concept uh, using a verse, a beautiful verse, which comes from the book of Proverbs. And I want to I want to explain this verse to you and this explanation of the Zohar because it's a very beautiful concept. There is a section, there's a chapter in the book of Proverbs, which was written by King Solomon, uh, which is titled "A Woman of Valor." It's a uh, it's a tribute to the Jewish woman, to the mother of a home. And uh, traditionally, we recite it every single Friday night at the Shabbat dinner before we make Kiddush, which is a very touching thing, right? The family gets together for Shabbat. And how do we begin Shabbat? By giving a tribute uh, to, the, to the mother, to the wife, to the anchor of the home. And it's a beautiful, beautiful poem that sings the praises of, uh, of, of the Jewish woman. Now, here's something very interesting. There is also a deeper layer to this chapter of Proverbs, A Woman of Valor. Because one of the relationships of how to describe um, God and the Jewish people is husband and wife. In Jewish tradition, there are many different types of relationships. We speak about God being our father, and we are his children. We speak about God being our king, and we are his servants, or we are his subjects. But then there's also this idea that we are spouses. God is, our, is the husband, the Jew is the wife. And the giving of the Torah, this becomes a very big theme. The giving of the Torah was the wedding. Mount Sinai was our chuppah. And this is not for now. There's a fascinating idea that every single detail of the narrative of what happened at Sinai there's a direct parallel to how we make the Jewish wedding, which is unbelievable. You could literally find how every single step of what happened at Sinai was, is exactly how we make weddings. So our, when we have a wedding here on earth, um, that is the microcosm. And then there's this macro, the wedding between God and the Jewish people. And from that perspective, when you read The Woman of Valor, it is really a, 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 a psalm which is singing the praises of a Jew. It takes on a whole new meaning, right? It's also speaking about the relationship of a Jew with God. You know, I, I've heard this before, and it's so interesting <laughs> that people don't know this. Have you ever heard people complain that in Judaism, it's a little bit chauvinistic? that we speak about God as he. God is always a he, a he, a he, a he. That's not fair, right? Why does God need to be a he? Why can't he be a she? What's the answer to that? We're the she, <laughs> right? If God's the he, we're the she. We're in a relationship with God. And from mystical perspective, God is the male partner and we are the female partner. So it's not like Judaism, oh, Judaism doesn't have a female character. What do you mean? That's all of us. The Jewish people is the female character in the relationship with God. So the, for all the people who got turned off by the he about God, no, 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 that, right? That's it's part of the beauty of the concept. We're the she. Okay, but in any case, right? I digress. Let's get back on topic. One of the verses in Proverbs is, her husband is known in the gates. What does that mean? Her husband is known in the gates. Um. So you could look it up yourself. I'll give you some homework. You could look up the commentaries to see what this verse means in, on a you know, in the literal meaning of the verse. But there's also a mystical perspective over here. Her husband is known in the gates. That her husband, referring to God, is known to the Jews in her gates or in the gates. And the Zohar says that the meaning of this verse is that God knows every single Jew from a very personal level. Every Jew has their gateway, their own personal way of how to relate to God, their own gate, how they access God. And each Jew has a different gate. And God is known to each Jew, and God knows each Jew through that gate. 
this, this the idea of the Zohar, which means that the relationship that every Jew has with God is unique and is, 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 is different. Nobody relates to God the same way. What the author is saying is this subject matter of spiritual development, cultivating our soul, building a relationship with God is so personal. And this is, this is getting to the question of, could a book, even if it's a Torah book, could it ever satisfy the needs of every individual Jew? And the argument that was given to the author is that it seems impossible. A book is always going to be limited. You speak to specific people. But when it comes to such a personal matter as a relationship with God, which is a very emotional, I don't think it was a fake out, Noah, <laughs> but, 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 I'll get, but I'll get to your question in a minute. Um, all right. A relationship with God is such a personal thing. Seemingly, it doesn't make any sense you could have a book, which is one size fits all. And this will give spiritual advice to everybody. One size fits all. That's the question. So um, these are the challenges. I'll get to all these questions here in a minute. These are the challenges that the Hasidim, the community of the Alter Rebbe, challenged the Alter Rebbe with. You're going to write a book of Tanya. We don't think it's going to work. Um, Noah, do you mind um, explaining your question a little bit? <laughs> oh, all I was trying to understand was how, you, as you said, he, uh, the Alter Rebbe strengthens his point uh, by saying, uh, first, even in first, even in law, uh, each person uh, brings himself uh, to gaze upon law and Torah. Uh, so that so uh, then all the more um, in matters, as, as I understood it, and the, the hidden matters like in in hidden hidden torah um right uh, personal elements of torah yeah it should be even more personal when it comes to the stuff we're about to discuss in this book right chava komer chava komer uh, that's, that's exactly chava komer right he actually says chava komer right so exactly but then the answer being this the answer being contained in this um quotation uh from the zohar on the mishle but her husband is known by the gates like I just didn't understand how he how he resolved it. By he didn't saying, resolve it yet. We're still at the question. There's no okay. answer. Okay. We are still at the question. The question is a burning question. There's no answer to the question. Yevgenia asked, "How does the personal nature of each individual's relation with God answer the question you posed at the beginning on whether laws are subjective or objective?" Yevgenia, the point over here is not to speak about the nature of law. We we brought in law only to emphasize the point that if even in law we find this idea of such a personal element to the discovery of Jewish law, then how much more so in the hidden parts of Torah, how much more so in the personal parts of Torah, that there's definitely, um, that there's definitely that. Okay. You know what? I want to get to more questions, God willing, um, at the end of class. All right. But I want to, I want to move on unless you, 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 you didn't understand something, but I want to, I want to get through the response. We have 20 minutes left and I want to get through page 14, page 15, and the top of page 16, all right, with God's help. So here we go, here we go. And by the way, feel free to mute, to, to chat a question, and then I could always decide if I want to answer it right now, or if it's a question which would make more sense to wait until 8.30 to answer. So the Alter Rebbe got these very uh, disturbing questions from his chassidim, they were very concerned that the Tanya will not just suffice for the needs of the community. And the Alter Rebbe didn't dismiss these questions. He took them very seriously. And he, uh, okay, Jenny, uh, you know, uh, let's move on from the law. All right. That was, that, that was just a way to emphasize the question. I don't, but it shouldn't, uh, right? It shouldn't, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't hold us back. The point is to understand the, the trajectory of the point. Okay. The author of it validates these concerns, which I think is, uh, is, is very remarkable. I think it's a sign of real leadership that he takes the challenges seriously. 
and he gives, uh, he explains them really well, you know, <laughs> he devotes a lot of ink to, to validating these, these challenges. And the author is going to say, all these challenges are correct. They're all true arguments. A book cannot replace a mentor. But this is no ordinary book. Tanya is different. And this is a stunning piece of Tanya. This little piece we're going to study right now. And um, the author was a man of tremendous integrity. He was a tremendous personality. And just when we read these, these lines over here, coming with somebody with the personality uh, the, and the power of the Alta Rebbe, it's a, very, it's, a very, it's a very powerful few lines over here where the Alta Rebbe responds to the challenge. By the way, I sent out an email last week. Uh, uh, no, it was, I sent it out on Sunday with a, with a video link. Did you guys see that? Yeah. If, you, if you didn't see that, you could go back and spend uh, seven or eight minutes to watch that. It's a little sampling of um, interviews uh, that they had, with, you know, that they conducted with people who uh, met the Rebbe, which was the Alta Rebbe's great, great grandson and eventual successor. And I think you see over there how personal the relationship was, um, how much love and care and attention that the Rebbe gave to people and how people felt that. And it gives you a little bit of a better understanding uh, at the level of concern and the alarm that the Hasidim show here, that Rebbe, you're going to print the Tanya? You're not going to give us that attention anymore? I think it helps us appreciate where the community was coming from when you see that video. If you didn't see the video, you could go back. It's a, it's a great video. You should go watch it. So the Rebbe responds. Here we go. Top of page 14. So the Rebbe says, the author Rebbe says, I speak, however, of those who know me well. To every single person in our community found in this country and in some, and its environs, right? Which means the surrounding countries as well. Since there have already been intimate conversations between us in private meetings, and you have revealed to me everything in the depths of your hearts and minds connected with the worship of God, which depends on the heart. The author of it says like this, I want you to know, most books are written in a vacuum. Most books are written with a certain sense of detachment from the audience. That's the way it is. That's just the nature of a book. The author of it says, I want you to know, I'm not speaking to a theoretical audience. I'm not speaking to readers who I don't know. The author of it says, I know you and you know me. We've spent hours together. We've had intimate conversations. You've opened up to me your heart and soul. I've read your souls. I know you. And the altar says something unbelievable. I had all of you in mind when I wrote the Tanya. You know, if you, if you look over here, there's a word that the English translation doesn't, doesn't capture. The altar says on the third line of the paragraph, since there have already been intimate conversations between us, there have been intimate conversations. So the word intimate, I guess, is a good word. But the Hebrew word is that there were uh, conversations of shalchiba. Chiba. Chiba means affection, affectionate. We've had conversations with tremendous deep affection, which is a very, which is a very powerful word. The author was saying that we had affectionate conversations. I imagine most people, when they had a meeting with the author Rebbe, they were probably overcome with a lot of awe. Uh, he, he, was, he, was, uh, he was an unbelievable figure. Uh, he had a tremendous power to, you know, uh, the, you know and, and you know, my, my frame of reference for this is the Rebbe. Uh, the, the Rebbe was such an accessible and kind person, but you couldn't help but feel a tremendous, just, you know, you were awestruck in his, in his, uh, in his presence. But at the same time, there was such a love. And the author says, We've, we spoke so affectionately. Right? This speaks to the relationship that they had. Salatim says, I'm not writing to an audience, you know, like these, these, uh, <laughs> these, um, these, these strike, uh, uh, strike a, a stroke of good luck authors who author a book, which is a bestseller, right? right? They have certain authors, they've never saw, seen anybody in their life and they write a book and all of a sudden becomes a bestseller. Salatim says, I'm not coming from that perspective. 
I'm not some rabbi living in a hole, right? Living in the ivory tower, writing a book on, you know, my ideas, what I think makes sense in my mind. I know you. I, 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 I wrote this book with you in mind. So the author of writes, let's, let, let's continue. To you, my speech streams and my tongue is like the pen of a scribe. I speak to you in these pamphlets entitled an anthology of teachings of Kuti Amarim. The author Rabbi writes over here again. He already wrote this in his title page uh, with, in his tremendous humility. He says, this is all a collection of old stuff, right? I'm not, this is not a creative piece of work, which on the one hand is true that everything in the Tanya is sourced in all the traditional texts of Judaism. On the other hand, the Tanya is an unbelievably creative and original work, but okay, that's for another time. So the author says, I'm speaking to you. I know you well, and I'm speaking to you. So the author of it says, let's continue reading. The author of it goes a little bit and speaks about the sources of the book. Just a little bit, uh, right? This book is anthologized from various texts and from various teachers of exceptional holiness whose souls are in heaven, who are well known to us. Are they well known to us? <laughs> the author of it is a little bit vague about his sources. We won't get into them now, but the author of it says, I got them from various texts and from various living teachers who he merited to learn and study under. And the, the author ever writes, and a few of these teachings, the wise will find alluded to in the sacred letters from our rabbis in the Holy Land, may it be rebuilt speedily in our days, amen. And a few of the teachings I heard from their holy mouths while they were here with us before departing to the Holy Land. So I don't wanna to get too much into the history of this, but in the 1770s, there was a mass migration of Jews, of Hasidic Jews, uh, from Russia to Israel. It was a very dangerous journey those days and a very difficult journey and a long journey. Uh, but out of the love of the land of Israel, where probably a few hundred Jews with a few Hasidic, great Hasidic leaders uh, led a pilgrimage to Israel. They moved to Israel and they, and they, um, they established communities in Hebron. Till today, there's a Chabad a synagogue and a Chabad cemetery um, in Hebron, it was established then, and in Jerusalem, a few places in Israel, maybe Tzvat, I'm not sure. And the, it's actually interesting that the Alter Rebbe uh, was planning on joining uh, that uh, caravan of travelers to, to travel to Israel. And when the Alter Rebbe was about to leave, the Jews who were staying behind in, in, in Russia and Ukraine begged the Alter Rebbe to stay because uh, if he left, there would be no more leaders left. They needed leadership. So the Alter Rebbe stayed. To, to, to be the leader. Uh, so in any case, the altar says that many of the teachings in Tanya, uh, he's heard from these great rabbis who already moved to Israel. And these rabbis would also send periodically letters back to the Jewish community in Russia. And he says, a lot of the ideas are hinted to in those letters. Okay, but that, this is a little bit of a side point. The altar is speaking about the sources of the book. But here the altar gets back to the point, right? The altar's point is, this book is not written in a vacuum. I know you and I had you in mind when I wrote the book. So the author of it says like this, all the teachings collected here are responses to the many questions posed constantly by all the members of our community in this country, each one at his own level to receive guidance for their souls in the worship of God. The author of it is saying, this book is not here to be a book of ideas. This book is not here to be a book of philosophy. If you learn Tanya and you study Tanya as a philosophy book, you are reading the book wrong. The author was saying, you know what this book is? This book is a book of answers. It's, an, it's a book addressing questions. It's not a book for the world of ideas. It's a book for the world of people, for people's lives, for people's struggles, for our struggles. I wrote this book with you in mind to be a practical book of practical guidance. And the author now explains why he decided to write the book. For time no longer permits me to answer each person's in inquiry individually, right? The author says this, uh, the, the demand for, for meetings is just too much. He, he, he can't handle it. It doesn't fit into his schedule, right? There's only 24 hours a day, only seven days a week. <laughs> only four weeks in a month, right? You get the drift. <clears throat> Top of page 15. 15. And also, the octopus is also an additional idea is 
because forgetfulness is common. Sometimes the Alter Rebbe would give people advice. They'd come back a few months later, a few years later, and say, Alter Rebbe, can you please remind me? Can we rehash that advice you gave me? And the Alter Rebbe says, I wouldn't mind doing that. But when there's such demand, the demand is too much. So the Alter Rebbe says, therefore, I have noted down all the responses to all the questions. Just, just think about the power of these words. This is a book which has all the answers to all the questions. Quite a wild and bold statement for an author to say. All the answers to all the questions. To be preserved as a sign so that every individual will have this book as a remembrance between his eyes. You have this book. You could always study from it. You can always remind yourself the ideas. And this will be the, the author is promising this community. I wrote this book for you. I had you in mind when I wrote this book. I literally thought of you. And I thought of what your soul needs and I wrote it into this book. It's unbelievable. It's so remarkable that he's using these, these, these words. And he says this book is a practical book for you. Every question, every answer to every question you have, it's here. And the author says, no longer will you need to press to come and speak with me privately. For in these responses recorded here, you will find inner peace and good advice in everything that troubles you in the worship of God. And your heart should be firm, trusting in God who completes everything for us. So the author is saying, I'm telling you, I'm promising to you. I, have wrote, I, I wrote down here everything you need. And with God's help, you'll succeed in finding what you need here in this book. You should know, I want to share with you something very interesting. Uh, the the Alter Rebbe's great-grandson, uh, his name is Rabbi Shalom Dovber Schneerson, Rabbi Shalom Ber Schneerson of Lubavitch. He was the fifth Chabad Rebbe. So the Alter Rebbe was the first Chabad Rebbe. Uh, Rabbi Shalom Dovber was the fifth Chabad Rebbe. He once said something very, very powerful. He said the Alter Rebbe literally invested his soul into the Tanya. And when a Jew studies Tanya, you are getting to know the Alter Rebbe. And it's literally as if you are studying a text together with the Alter Rebbe. Very, very powerful statement. Right? Most people can't invest themselves into a book, right? A book is our ideas, but it's very hard to invest your soul into. This is what the and uh, Rabbi Shalom Dover was saying that the Tanya is a book which, if you study and invest yourself properly into it, it could become a very personal experience. A personal experience even to the point that the Alter Rebbe gets to know you and you get to know the Alter Rebbe. And I want to share with you one more thing. It's, it's a little bit of a wild thing. Take it or leave it. All right? There's a tradition in Chabad. And the Rebbe spoke about this. And uh, the previous Chabad Rebbe spoke about this. That when the Alter Rebbe says, I, I wrote this book and I had in mind all of you. I had you in mind. I wrote this book for you. I literally studied your soul and I've identified what your soul needs to hear. And it's in the book. The tradition goes that the Alter Rebbe with the power of his divine insight saw every single soul which will ever learn Tanya in the future and has included advice and teachings even for those souls which weren't part of his community in those days. Which is, uh, I'll, I'll, leave it, I'll leave it there. This is, this is a very big idea that the Alter Rebbe invested himself and, and he saw how important this book is and he studied the souls of every single Jew who will ever study this book until Mashiach comes. So this is the author of his pledge to his community. This book was not written in a vacuum. I had you in mind, I had all your problems in mind and every single question you will ever have about spiritual growth, spiritual development and your spiritual challenges, I've addressed the answer. Not just the answer, but your answer in this book. Unbelievable statement. Let's, let's conclude here. The author of it says, what about those Jews who are, not, uh, who are not such great scholars. And they open up the Tanya and they, they can't understand it. 
You know, today they have books of Tanya translated into English and you can buy a book with commentary. And even today, even with English translations, it's a very deep book. <laughs> it's, a, it's a difficult book to study. So the author addressed the practical, the practical issue that maybe there are certain Jews who won't, who won't be able to study Tanya and be able to identify the power, the personalized power within the book. So the Alter Rebbe writes like this. A very practical thing the Alter Rebbe says. If your comprehension is too weak to understand the intended practical advice from reading these pamphlets yourself, then consult your local scholar and they will enlighten you. Find a rabbi, find a scholar who's proficient in the teachings of Tanya and ask him to help you. And hopefully a scholar will be able to guide you and help you see the light in the book. And here the author ever adds something very uh, interesting. And to those scholars, I urge you to be forthcoming with advice. Do not place Right. Do not to place, right? Uh, that's a mistake. Do not place a hand upon your mouth to God forbid act with false humility and modesty. Don't be one of those scholars who when somebody asks a question, shrugs your shoulder and says, oh, I don't know. I can't help you. Ask somebody else for help. I'll just say, don't be one of those people. If there's a Jew who shows up and says, I want to learn Tanya, learn Tanya with them. And the altar of it says, the bitter punishment for one who withholds sustenance is well known. The Talmud speaks very, very harshly about somebody who knows Torah and doesn't teach Torah. The, the author of a set, the, the Talmud says this, you're robbing a Jew of their inheritance. A Jew wants to study, you could teach them and you're not gonna teach them. This is their inheritance. You're robbing from a Jew their inheritance. And the Talmud says something a little bit wild. The Talmud says even, even children, <laughs> even fetuses in the womb will curse that person. You withhold Torah, even a fetus is going to curse you. All right. <laughs> I don't understand what that means, but that's what it says. Back in the text. And conversely, the great reward for sharing Torah wisdom is also well known from our sages teaching on the verse. That when one who is poor in wisdom is enlightened by one rich in wisdom, it is ultimately mutually beneficial, for God enlightens the eyes of both of them. The Talmud says this, and I think anybody who's ever taught knows this as well. When you teach anything to other people, you end up understanding it better than you would ever be able to understand it on your own. That's the way it works. And Talmud promises this. When you teach, God also enlightens you. It's a gift to yourself as well. And I can tell this to you from personal experience. That uh, as I teach, I get a much deeper appreciation. Uh, there's an unbelievable appreciation that comes from the give and take of learning with people. That, that personal study, you can never get that deep. Page 16. For when the scholar will assist the reader in understanding this book, God will shine his face upon both of you with the light of the king's face which is life. God will bless both of you and shine his light upon both of you. And the author ever concludes, and may he who gives life grant us the privilege to see the days when one man will no longer teach his friend and every man his brother saying, no God, for they shall all know me. From the least of them onto the greatest of them, this is one of the prophets about the messianic age from the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Yirmiyahu, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. So the author ever concludes with the blessing. May we come to the day when all Jews will have this very deep understanding and knowledge with God and no longer will any Jew need a teacher when Mashiach comes in the Messianic era. Amen. May it be God's will. And with that, the author ever addresses, which is a very powerful pledge to his community, that I know books have a natural drawback. Books have natural limitations, but this book is different. Next week, we will conclude the last section, which won't take us a long time, of the author's introduction. And then we will begin chapter one. So we'll begin actually digging in.
to the actual uh, meat and potatoes of Tanya, God willing. All right. Well then, thank you all for joining. Have a wonderful evening and happy New Year's to you all. I, I, I very much appreciate that even in this uh, busy season and when we're not in routine, we're making Tanya routine regardless. I appreciate that of all of you. That's wonderful. God Have a wonderful you. evening, everyone.